You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd said to him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and we, What shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff will will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that in it we see the risen Lord Jesus. We pray now that you would indeed be our vision, that the cry of our heart would actually be that thou and thou only, first in our heart, we want to know you, we want to see you, we want to believe you. We pray for the faith to believe, and we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night, so if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to talk about Luke 3 with Cedric and Stephen, you guys can head on out. Uh, Welcome, everyone. It's good to see you all here in 2023. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I would love to meet you uh, after the service if I haven't. It was so great to have a week off last week. I think I can speak for all of us in saying, is Raybo here? I don't see him. There he is, Raybo, brother. We are so thankful uh, for how you served us last week. Raybo worked so hard in prayer and in study and in preparation to lead and to shepherd and to pastor and feed us last week. So all of that in and through a busy holiday season with parenting seven children and finishing up end-of-year engineering projects. Uh, Brother, a a few of us were talking this last week that as Raybo was talking about building intentional rhythms of worship into our lives, even as families in order to know Christ and to love God more, uh, most of us, I think, who know Raybo and who were sitting in the pews last Sunday, we just believed him that he is doing these things in his life, and it was easy to trust him in the things that he was teaching us. So, Rebo, you're a gift to our church. Church, not only how you serve it faithfully, but how you model a godly life for us. So, Christ Church, follow Rebo as he follows Christ. Uh, well, Rebo walked us through the two childhood narratives of Jesus at the temple last week in Luke 2. Luke shows us that even as a child, Jesus has always been about doing the Father's work. That even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus is about the temple work of pleasing God and bringing people into knowing God. And yet, last week we saw in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus' work, his actual ministry, had not yet begun. It is coming. Momentum is building. He is about the work, but he is not doing the work yet. Jesus is about to go public in who he is and what he has come for. And so Luke 3, what you just heard Dave read, is a bridge. It's a transition of everything that has been building to now, we'll see at the end of this passage and then into the, our next text next week, uh, that it is, it's on. It is public. John the Baptist here in Luke chapter 3 is the main actor, but Jesus is the main character. John's the main actor, but Jesus is the main character in the background. So just like Moses passed off the mantle to Joshua at the Jordan River in Deuteronomy 31, just like Elijah passes the mantle to Elisha at the Jordan River in 2 Kings 2, John the Baptist here, now at the Jordan River, will hand off the baton, the baton of proclaiming the kingdom of God, now from him to Jesus. Now, we know about John from chapter 1. If you've been with us the last several months, if, you've, uh, if you remember when Gabriel came to John's elderly father, Zechariah, in the temple to tell him that his elderly wife would not only have a child, uh, but this child would grow and have an important future ministry of preparing and pointing to Jesus. And in fact, that's all that chapter 3 is about, is about John's ministry, which is about preparing and pointing to Jesus. So we're going to see this Uh, under two halves tonight. I originally thought we were going to get through all of chapter 3 tonight. We're just going to get to where you heard Dave end reading in in verse 22. But we're going to just see two halves tonight that Jesus, or that John, points to Jesus' mission 
in the first 20 verses, which will be the majority of our time, and then the Father points to Jesus's identity. So John points to Jesus's mission, and the Father points to Jesus's identity. So first of all, right off the bat here in in verse 1, let's get after it, that John points to Jesus's mission. In verse 1, Luke again sets this narrative as a narrative of actual events in time and in space and in history. Hey, look at that. New, uh, new slides for a new year. Uh, we're going to try to keep a, a theme together for every book. Uh, we've been thinking about the upside-down kingdom of God, so here we go. Anyway, beginning with Tiberius here in verse 1, uh, Tiberius is the new emperor of Rome. Caesar Augustus is gone by now, and then Luke works his way down through local governors and local officials. Uh, did you know that Abilene is not just a small town, West Texas town, but it's in the Bible? Now you do from Luke chapter 3. But uh, through local governors, officials, now working its way all the way, Luke does, down to the priesthood of Israel. Luke is doing, what he's doing here is not just some vague religious myth. He's not just like a telephone gaming his way through the generations. Uh, this story of Jesus that uh, grows in its mythology and then eventually gets written down centuries later. No, Luke is presenting to us eyewitness account that actually happened. Then synthesized, put together by Luke for a theological purpose. And he says at the end of verse 2 that now setting this narrative in actual time and space, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, we don't know how or what that looked like, what the word of God coming to John looks like, but this is very similar to accounts in the Old Testament of the word of God coming to various prophets that they might then speak and preach to Israel. And his message here, when the word of God comes to John, his message is exactly the same as that of the Old Testament prophets proclaiming a baptism of repentance and a forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, he's out here baptizing at the Jordan River, and this is, this is obviously why we call him John the Baptist. It's not because he likes casseroles and potlucks and stuff, but he is a baptizer. He is John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. These, these, there are like all kinds of ceremonial washings that could be in the background of what he's doing, uh, but the fact is, he's, he's seemingly instituting like a one-time baptism. It's not, people aren't coming to him over and over and over again to be rewashed or something. We see in Acts 19 that Paul encounters some folks in Ephesus, way up in Turkey, who had been baptized, quote, into John's baptism. They were brought into John's baptism. People weren't going out, ongoingly being washed over and over again. And nor is this some sort of like pre-Easter direct line of uh, continuity, baptism of continuity that we do today. It's a bit different, we're going to see, uh, of what John was doing before Christ and what we do now after Christ. But we'll swing back around to that in a few minutes. But if that's what it isn't, what is John doing? What is he doing out on, in the river? Luke directly quotes from Isaiah 40 for what John is doing and what he is preaching. Isaiah 40 begins a section uh, in the book of Isaiah in which God begins a new act of returning to his people. The people of Israel have been way out in exile in Babylon, way out in the east. And now God is telling them that he has come again to bring them renewed comfort to once again dwell with them. 
Isaiah, along with Ezekiel and Jeremiah and many other Old Testament prophets, look forward to a day of a new act of God to covenant with his people, to wash them by his spirit, to give them new hearts that they might have the law on their hearts internally, not just the law on some external pieces of stone. And so John's message of repentance, of turning from sin and turning to God, can perhaps be best be summed up by the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Malachi says in chapter 3, verse 7, return to me, God says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's repentance. Return to me and I, God, will return and come to you. The vision of Isaiah 40 that Luke quotes from here is someone out in the wilderness getting things ready for the arrival of a king. So just like today, like secret service agents go out ahead of a presidential motorcade, or they go ahead in a new town where they know the president is coming to scope it out, some advanced planning. Ancient kings would do the exact same thing of having advanced parties sent out to even smooth out the roads. If a king is coming in a carriage or something, you want to make his journey as easy as possible. Maybe even if traveling over especially treacherous mountain or canyon roads, they'd have bridges built for the coming king or bits of a mountain carved out to make the roads smooth and straight. Our highways and interstate systems are the exact same way. The highways and our interstates don't wind unnecessarily. If the road, is, the road is always built for the straightest and most direct path, if it does wind out of the way, it's for a reason, to come to a different town or to go around something to pre- or to prepare a more direct path. John here is following in the line of the Old Testament prophets, and he is now beginning a construction project for the coming king. But it is a construction project of the human heart so that the coming king might have a straight, direct clear line to arrive there. And so huge crowds have come out to John in the wilderness. Luke just calls them crowds, while Matthew and Mark both hyperbolically call the whole region of Jerusalem and Judea, like every single person in the south of Israel has come out to hear John. Enormous crowds. We made mention of this a few weeks ago, that John is so well known. If there is such thing as a first century uh, celebrity, he is it. The fact that Paul meets people in Acts 19 who were baptized by John in Turkey is amazing. People are coming from all over this region to hear him preach. This is like Billy Graham at his absolute height in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Huge crowds. We should probably imagine him preaching to at least hundreds at a time, but likely upwards of thousands at a time. And John sets the mood just right. He lowers the lights to a nice inviting purple, uh, turns on the fog machine, gets the music going, and comforts the people. Comforts them that God is so happy with them with just the way they are living their lives, and God wants them to just stop being so hard on themselves. God wants them to be happy and well and pursue the highest level of mental health possible without ever having to do any sort of personal introspective thought and reflection. Verse 7, he said therefore to the crowds that, come, that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He had not gotten the memo about the fog machine and the purple lights 
He is coming hard right off the bat. Now, brood of vipers is a kind of well-known phrase. If you've been around the Bible, if you've read the Gospels, you know that phrase. So I think you can, at least I did this week in preparing for this, kind of forgot what that means. What is a brood? A brood is like a family of children. It is your descendants. I have a brood of four sons. So what is John saying? As the people come out to hear him preach, he yells at them, you sons of snakes, children of serpents. He is foreshadowing Jesus' own preaching in John 8, where Jesus calls many of Israel's leaders, sons of your father, the devil. John's imagery is that of like a brush fire. Like there's a fire in Jerusalem, and all of these snakes have come out into the wilderness trying to escape the wrath of the fire. But John doesn't just say, keep running from that wrath, keep running from judgment, but now that you're out here, He says, you've come out here probably for the wrong reasons, but now that I've got you, repent. Turn to the Lord. Return to the Lord. In verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance isn't just something that you say, but it is something that you do. He's saying bear fruits. He's talking about a tree. What does a healthy tree do just naturally? And not just a fruit tree, if you have a peach tree or an apple tree or a plum tree, those create fruits. But any kind of a tree produces fruit, whether it be any kind of a seed or a nut or an acorn or whatever. That is a fruit. Do trees produce fruit by trying real hard? No, they're just healthy trees. A healthy tree produces fruit not as something that it does on its own, but as a sign of internal health, of in his imagery here, John's imagery of knowing God and having the life of God coursing through the tree so that the tree can't help but produce fruit. We'll come back to that. John, though, just keeps hammering away at this sonship thing, theme. He, he calls them, you sons of snakes. But then, verse 8, don't get it wrong. He says, don't begin to say to yourselves, but we have Abraham as our father. Don't hear me saying that you're a son of a snake and then say, no, 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 I'm Jewish. I have Abraham, or I'm one of his descendants. He's saying that don't just think that because you are Jewish, because you're a descendant of Abraham, that you have some covenantal promises available to you regardless of whether you know God or love him. There are some blessings by being close to knowledge of God, but don't rely on that. Do you know him? Do you love him? For I tell you, he says, that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John isn't saying that God is going to like, uh, like walk by and speak to a bunch of stones and these stones are going to become people and there will become the new sons of God. He doesn't say that. He says, from these stones. This is a reference to Isaiah 51, where Isaiah calls Abraham a rock out of which the sons of Israel were cut. John is saying, People, sons of snakes out there, uh, God once miraculously cut people from a stone. His name was Abraham. And if he did it then, he can do it anew. He can cut children from a new stone. It isn't belonging to Abraham that actually matters. It is belonging to God. So he says, be a fruit-bearing tree, a tree that shows evidence of belonging to God. Or... If not, that tree is actually worthless. 
Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What good is a dead and dying tree? It doesn't provide shade. If the leaves are all dying, it doesn't provide, pro- provide fruit. It's not reproducing itself. What is it good for? And John is saying, nothing. There is an axe aimed not just uh, aiming at chopping down the tree, but getting rid of its memory altogether. The axe is aimed at the root, taking out both the root and branch to both be devoted to wrath. This is heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. But again, it falls right in line with what the prophets of Israel have always preached. God has created humanity to act as his sub-rulers, to live and to rule the earth on his behalf, in his goodness, under his authority, downstream from his authority, downstream of his good order for the universe, in love for him, in love for humanity, in love for creation. And yet when we, limited and selfish, created humans, place ourselves not just on par with God, but over and above God as now the arbiters and the judges of what is right and wrong in the universe, over and above the eternal and life-giving creator, rejecting his rule, using creation not for his glory, but for ours. Well then, an equal and opposite reaction against the rejection of of an eternal God is eternal wrath. It is judgment. And yet... Judgment and wrath are not part of God's eternal character. Judgment and wrath are not part of God's eternal character. Justice is, but God is love eternally. Wrath is only a good and right response to human sin. God has not been eternally wrathful. Before humanity was created and before humanity had rebelled against him, wrath was not part of him. God is love and his righteousness. Justice, yes, but those are all part, two sides of the same coin. And so while an axe is laid at the root of the tree, it is an axe that makes distinctions. Against those who would come to him for salvation and life, he offers salvation and life. He offers his fruit of producing life, of giving of the Spirit, The king is coming, and John is preaching of a construction project of the heart that makes ready his coming, a heart that is willing and ready to receive, to agree with Jesus about the nature of his kingdom and about the character of God. And to their overwhelming credit, the crowds respond. They realize that John's baptism wasn't just some washing, just some a religious ritual that if you just went out there and got washed by John, now you're all of a sudden good with God again. But that his baptism was actually an act representative of something deeper. Verse 10, after they've been being, they're, they're being baptized by him, verse 10, the crowds ask him, okay then, what shall we do? We want to repent. We want to do these kinds of things, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? What does that look like? In verse 11, he answered them, He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, and this is a theme that we're going to continue to trace throughout the rest of Luke's gospel, do not hoard your things, but seek to meet the needs of others in generosity. 
If God has been generous to you, do not uh, be the end like receptacle of that generosity, but a conduit. Now letting that generosity flow through you. Then some others come up, some tax collectors. They ask in verse 12, what should we do? And if you have any familiarity, familiarity with the Bible, tax collectors are social pariahs. They are Jews, but they collect for the Romans, often getting wealthy by what they demand and what they might even steal from their Jewish countrymen. But interestingly, they say, what shall we do? John doesn't say, quit your jobs right now. Especially since you're collecting money from the people of God and you are sending that money onto a corrupt empire. Sending that money on to Rome. He doesn't tell them to quit. He just tells them to keep doing their jobs with honesty. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Do not steal. And in the same way, verse 14, soldiers also asked them, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This word extort quite literally means a shakedown. As a, these, these soldiers are like mobsters. The word comes from a shaking of a tree. Like when you extort, you walk up to a tree and you shake it and you get all the fruit to come out and you take the fruit. Notably, John doesn't tell these soldiers to quit their jobs either. These are likely soldiers of Herod, probably not Roman soldiers, but he doesn't tell them to quit their job, that any potential role in state violence or something is categorically wrong. He doesn't say that. In fact, we'll see Jesus later even commend Roman soldiers. He doesn't tell them to quit their jobs. But all John tells them to do is just do your jobs with honesty. Don't steal. Or if we could sum up this entire section, these three different kinds of commands to three different audiences, we might say that John is telling the crowds to meet needs, don't create them. Meet needs, don't create them. See, this is the difference in a healthy tree of the life of God flowing out and through that provides good for the world around them. That's the difference between a good tree and a dead tree. A good tree has life flowing out to provide. A dead tree has no life and actually is trying to suck any bit of moisture in the dirt that might save it, might fill it. Trying to find something that will once again enable it to nourish. So a good tree, one that is full and giving, or a dead or dying tree that is empty and taking. This is the default mode of the human heart, right here. Dead and taking, empty and taking. The default mode of the human heart is to consume. To take, to take, to take, and then take more. To take any number of commodities out there, but then even to use other humans as commodities in order to fill us. We feel emptiness, we use and we take in order to try to attempt to be filled. We certainly know this when we find ourselves in perhaps a position of power. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be like the mayor of the city or a CEO of your company or something. We all have, we all have relationships in which we are the one with greater power, even you younger kids. If you've got a younger sibling, you're usually the one that has the power. And we remember, you adults, how we treated our younger siblings 
with power to take. It is the the default mode of our heart to force the service of others for me. To take from you to benefit me. To maybe even take your time to benefit me. To use others for my advancement. Because I am empty, I need all of you to fill me. But the right side up economy of heaven invades the upside down world and says, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Because the divine life of God comes to fill his people, they no longer need to exploit or to take in order to be filled because they are already filled. Now the people of God can exist now being filled by God in order to meet needs and not create them. Financially, relationally, with our time, with our serving others rather than being served by them. And so these people, they ask them, or ask John what they should do, what repentance actually looks like, and John gets real practical. Meet needs, don't create them. Care more about others than yourself. I recently heard a talk in which the speaker said that we often go through life, often like with other people, like when you play volleyball, have you ever played volleyball? And when you're about, you know, five feet from your closest teammate, and the ball gets hit so perfectly, two and a half feet in between both of you, what do you do? You both make a, you both lean towards the ball, but then you're expecting the other person to go, go get it first, and then you look at where the ball landed, and then you look at each other, you're like, come on, that was yours, but it wasn't. The Christian life is like playing volleyball, and when needs come right in the middle of us, we are calling it. That's mine. It's mine. When there is someone in our gospel community who needs something with time, with prayer, with financial needs, we're not waiting for someone else to call it, but we are calling it. As husbands, when it's another dirty diaper or throw up in the middle of the night, mine, I got it. This is what Paul is trying to say in Romans 12:10 of outdoing each other in showing honor. This is a healthy tree of calling it, of calling needs and seeking to outdo one another. Our churches in our the members of our church in our family with siblings outdoing each other in showing honor and calling it on the needs that might come up, come about. We use the Westminster Confession of Faith tonight for our profession of faith and the, the phrase that Kyle noted at the end always kind of makes me giggle because it sounds kind of weird that we ought to repent of particular sins particularly. But it's actually really good. If we think about that, Kyle told us to think and meditate on that phrase this week. This is such a good time of year to have conversations together throughout the week to talk about what a turned life, a repentant life, a healthy tree life looks like, particularly, like in the parts, not just generally. It's really easy to think about what the Christian life ought to look like generally. Hypothetically, we know what others should be doing, but without really thinking about the day-to-day, moment-by-moment parts of my life. It's very easy to 
stay up here and think generally about what a Christian should mean and look like, and yet God wants all of us to love him with our whole heart and soul and strength and mind, with our desires, with our actions, with our motives even, week by week, hour by hour, minute by minute. And so John is preaching all of this. And again, to their credit, the people recognize that this is divine. This is heavenly teaching. And so Luke tells us that they begin to wonder, is this guy the Christ? Is he the Messiah, the anointed son of David, come to bring and deliver God's people into his settled presence? And so John responds in verse 16. He says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He's saying, I'm not the Christ. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now he's saying that untying a sandal is like a servant or a slave's job. And he is saying, I am not the Christ, but he is coming. And I, you think that I'm giving you something amazingly awesome and good? This is good. This is the wisdom of God that I am preaching. But my life and teaching and ministry, I am not worthy at all with what is coming. I am just the warm-up act. And we know why warm-up acts, right, exist. You've gone to a concert. You don't just go and see the, the headliner, first of all. You don't open the doors at 8, and then at 8.03, Taylor Swift comes on stage. You not only want to build the expectation, build the anticipation and excitement, but you kind of want to get the crowd going. You want to build them and get them in in the mood together as a collective so that when the headliner comes on, there is something to walk onto, to be received by. And so he said, I am just the warm-up. Jesus is altogether categorically different in the kind of baptism that he is going to do and what he is going to bring. So what is John's baptism? We actually haven't gotten there yet. Here's what I think John's baptism is actually about. It is less about washing and more about location. It's important that we never hear of John baptizing anyone anywhere other than at the Jordan River. And more than that, uh, Jerusalem is down to the south, and the Jordan River is out to the east of town, and John is out in the wilderness beyond the river. He is even east of the river. He crosses the river and makes everyone else cross the river to come out and hear him. Why not just go out to like the west bank of the Jordan River and baptize all these people out there if it's just a washing or something? What's the big deal with crossing and going out into the wilderness? Now, Mark is going to make a bigger thematic theme out of this than Luke does, but John the Baptist thinks of his role in ministry like that of Moses, gathering the newly constituted people out on the east banks of the Jordan. But just like Moses, who can like peer into the land, but not go in, he hands the mantle off to Joshua that Joshua might take the people into the land. The same is happening here. Joshua. Yeshua, out of exile, Jesus might take the people out of exile in the east and now into the settled presence of God. 
While followers of Jesus, us, now, will continue in water baptism after Jesus' death and resurrection, the spiritual work of his baptism, of Jesus' baptism, is to wash and cleanse by the Holy Spirit, which purges and cleans and then brings those who belong to him into the barn of God, into usable wheat. But the farmer, just like we thought about in the book of Ruth a few months ago, the farmer separates the unusable dust, the chaff, from the usable grain. He sends others into judgment. And again, we tend to read something like that and squirm. All this fire and judgment and wrath stuff seems so harsh and terrible. But look at verse 18. After all this wrath and fire stuff again, Luke says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. When we hear someone preaching about wrath and judgment, we, what do we call him? Like a fire and brimstone preacher. He's not preaching hope. He's just preaching condemnation and judgment. To Luke, this kind of preaching actually is gospel, is good news, is a gospel is a preaching of hope and of joy. This preaching and warning is good news. It is the gospel because the God of glory is offering salvation. As 21st century Westerners with like postmodernism in our very blood and our DNA, that any belief or conviction is an equally good belief or conviction as long as like that belief or conviction is earnestly believed by the person believing it where a phrase like your truth and my truth actually makes sense. We live in that context. We can read a passage like this or like Jesus in John 10 where Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and find pasture. And we read Jesus in that John 10 and we think, well, Jesus, that is very exclusive of you. Why aren't there more doors? Why haven't you created other pathways to be found by you? But if you are steeped into the world of the Bible, you read Jesus saying, I am the door, and you read that and you say, there's a door? What good news? What kind of incredible God is this that would offer himself, that would offer wisdom, that would offer a path of salvation, which would offer salvation? which would offer himself, that he would offer himself as a God of love and of glory and of truth and of grace. There's a coming king and a kingdom of God, now coming, John is preaching, who will dwell with his people in love. Which Luke, then, did you notice this? He gets a little out of order. He goes straight to a couple of years from now, at the end of John's life, the other gospel writers place this elsewhere in the gospel. Luke just wants to get most of the John stuff out of the way so that he can just hit the ground running with Jesus. But he tells us he's doing something intentionally here too. Luke immediately contrasts this kingdom that John is preaching, this king and kingdom that is coming, with then Herod in verses 19 and 20. Both Matthew and Mark, again, fill in more details about Herod's arrest of John, but this Herod is a man of power who operates under the default mode of the human heart. Taking, taking, taking. Using, exploiting, and even murdering. Luke sandwiches all of the rulers of the world in verse 1 of chapter 3, starting with the, empire, the emperor of Rome, down to the temple priesthood, and then he puts Herod here, There are two rival kingdoms at play here. 
kingdoms of power and of taking and of exploitation, and the kingdom of heaven, the right-side-up kingdom of heaven that seeks to serve and to save. And now finally, it's like the openers have all played, the warm-up acts are all done, and it's time for Taylor Swift. I believe that I just compared Taylor Swift to Jesus. Uh, Might this be struck from the record, but uh, Luke has Herod in charge here, now imprisoning the prophets of God. All is weird and crazy, and we are seeing the upside down for what it is, and then the slow clap starts. It's time for the opener. So now, secondly, verse 21 and 22, the Father points to Jesus' identity. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on, on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. When all the people Luke tells us we're baptized. Again, this seems a bit hyperbolic, but Luke is saying that now the people have all been gathered on the shores of the Jordan. They are ready to enter the land out of their exile. Joshua is now here and ready to lead them over the Jordan. And so Jesus goes into the water himself, not because he needs to be washed of sin. This is not a baptism of repentance for him. He has nothing to repent of. But in going in and through the waters, Jesus is now formally dedicating himself into the ministry, into the service of God, while also publicly announcing his arrival. He's gone public. Luke doesn't emphasize the actual baptism and conversation with John as Matthew does, but what Luke does emphasize is that what happens, this dove descending and a voice from heaven, what happens comes while Jesus is praying. This is going to be a huge theme, prayer, throughout the Gospel of Luke, so just get ready. But while praying, the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, not a falcon, not an eagle, but a peaceful dove. Maybe drawing our imaginations to the dove of Noah, of God bringing a new and restored earth. Maybe even drawing our imagination all the way to the beginning, when God the Spirit also hovered over the waters and descended. But God the Father declares then, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now there is so much Old Testament just baked into those two short phrases. Like Psalm 2, where God gives his royal Son and dominion over all the earth. The Son of God is the King of God. Or Isaiah 42, 1, where God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Or in other translations, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him, God says in Isaiah 42 of his servant. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so this is a regal, royal announcement from heaven. It is an inauguration ceremony like happens in Washington, D.C. every four years, or better, a coronation ceremony, a coronation from heaven, where Jesus walks out of the water, now with a royal crown, clothed in the Spirit of God. But by connecting the royal servant of Isaiah here to Jesus, if you know the book of Isaiah, what else do we know about the royal servant of God? What do we know about the servant 
in Isaiah's imagination. Who is the servant and what does the servant do? He suffers. He dies for the people's sins. Because here's the best part of Jesus' baptism, is that we are baptized into him. Like we saw over and over again in Ephesians, Paul is less concerned about whether or not Jesus is in us, but more about whether we are in Jesus, whether we are in Christ, identified with him, united to him. In Jesus' death on our behalf, we get God's forgiveness. We get his righteousness. Jesus' righteous and obedient life now lived for us. We get it. So that when we say we are in Christ, God now views us as his son and might say of us as well, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Now, of course, we are still sinners. And God desires ongoing and growing faith and obedience but do you believe this? Repenting of particular sins, particularly, yes. Amen, and until the Lord returns, for God's glory and for our increasing joy. But do you believe that God can be well pleased in you because of the righteousness of Christ now given to you? That you are in Christ and that you are beloved, that you are loved by God, not just liked not merely tolerated by God, but loved as a son or daughter. Not just now employed as good soldiers in his kingdom, but as a child belonging to his family. That you no longer have to work or sweat or cross your fingers and hope that you did enough in the end. That your good hopefully outweighs your bad in the end. That, oh shoot, like maybe someday maybe tomorrow, maybe 50 years from now, he really might come in with a winnowing fork and he's going to grab me and he's going to toss me into the fire. The gospel says that Jesus has lived for you. The gospel is that Jesus has died for you. The gospel is that Jesus has brought people, is bringing people into his life, death, and resurrection that there might be forgiveness, that there might be assurance. Because if Jesus has done it, then we are good. If we are in him and united to him in faith, it is finished. All of which now allows you to rest from your endlessly tiring and ultimately futile quest for God's acceptance. Repent. Turn to God. Return to God and he will return to you. Perhaps for the first time, become a son or daughter of the Most High God. If not, rest in your identity as a son or daughter in the Most High God and now live into your identity as identified with Jesus. No longer sons of snakes, not even sons of Abraham. Maybe depending on your parents' faith. Maybe depending on your family's legacy of faith. But you, baptized into Jesus, washed by the Spirit. And if you have been baptized into Christ... Just like we professed earlier, it is not repentance that saves, it is not Jesus, it is not bapt, or it is Jesus, it is not baptism that saves, it is Jesus. But in our baptism, God has actually declared, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and you I am well pleased. So in times of doubt, in times of loss or anxiety or temptation, 
you might be able to look back on your baptism with full confidence and say, I have been baptized. I belong to God. I am with Jesus. I am united to him. I am in the Christ, and he is in me. I, we are the branches, and he is the vine. He is the royal king, and I owe him my life, and yet he is also the royal servant who has given me his life. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Our whole life, our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, our actions, our thoughts, our desires, our motives, all to him I owe. He has come to do this construction project of the human heart. We need the Spirit for this. So Jesus is about to start preaching and teaching a lot about what this king and kingdom actually is for. Next week, we're going to watch Luke continue this theme of sonship. We've seen him talk about being a son lots of times. Sons of snakes, sons of Abraham. This is my beloved son. He's going to continue. With now comparing and thinking about Jesus, not only as a son of God, but a son of Adam. And both the genealogy at the end of chapter 3 and then into the temptation in the wilderness of chapter 4. Is he the first Adam? Will he respond like the first Adam? Or do we have something better here? Is Jesus actually the son of God will be the question for those two sections. So read ahead. Come hungry, come trusting and resting in the work of Christ on your behalf. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, that you are the high king of the universe, and yet you welcome us out of the courtroom and into the family room, that we might know you, that we might rest in you, but that we might also have your life in and through us, that you might make us holy, that you might make us more and more trees that bear fruit for the good of others. God, help us. Help us to receive your generosity and to recognize this generosity as something to continue on through us. Help us to grow in outdoing each other in showing honor in our families, with our roommates, with our gospel community groups, with us here on Sundays, with our neighbor, with our coworkers, with those we meet on the street, help us to outdo each other in showing honor, for you have shown us more honor than we were ever owed. We only deserved your wrath and your judgment, and yet you have given us Christ. You've given us yourself, and so help us, we pray, in this gospel of Luke, to know Christ, to rest and to grow into being united in him we pray in his name amen we hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in christ through the preaching of this sermon for more information about christ church visit www.christchurchabq.com